this is scenario. They were scared to death of me as well. <laughs> you know, there was belief that I had juju, which is black magic. You know, in the height of the farm invasion side, at the end of my time there, they were they had a witch doctor. And this guy was collecting sand from my footprints and putting curses on me. And also, this is another thing they didn't like, tattoos. I'm considered the painted man right. in Shona. So in Shoshono and Shona, which is the governing tribe of Zimbabwe, I'm a painted man. Now, back in their history, painted man were the Maasai and the Zulu who used to come and steal their women and their cattle. Right. So I was a bit of a just a taboo. That's, that was probably one of the reasons I got away with my time there. So how did they, what did they get you for? They obviously put you in prison. Oh, was it- yeah, yeah. They put, they, so they came, picked me up, tried to get me to get on a plane. They just wanted me out. And I said, I'm not leaving. It's not happening. And so they tried to, to coerce me. What, what, how did you call it? Physical persuasion. <laughs> <laughs> but they tried that. That didn't work. And then they charged me with fraud, counterfeiting, um, four or five immigration charges and a whole bunch. By the time I made it to the court system four days later, it was about five charges. One of them, the big one, was the fraud, right? Which, which was ten years. All up, it was about thirteen and a half years worth of prison time. My name is Paul Harvey, and this is Life, Passion, and Business. We're about helping you explore, finding your passion for life and the work that you do. But it's so much more than that. It's about finding clues to the big life questions. What does it mean to be successful? What is the meaning of life? If you're looking for more, then join me on this journey, where together we will discover through interviews, tools and tips, how to live life full of meaning, passion and purpose. Our story on the show is about a crusade against corruption that ended with time in an African prison. But that is just an outcome of a story that starts with early trauma, fear, anger and addiction. You are in for a conversation about love and compassion and being a better parent. Aaron Young is Australian, born to a woman who was an addict and ill-equipped for motherhood. She was absent for much of his youth and he was the parent and protector of his younger sister. Life was about survival and living in fear for young Aaron. What started out as being fearful turned to anger as he got older. By his mid-teens he was rejected by the services and having given up on life he found brotherhood in the gang scene, turning to drugs, violence and street crime. That got extreme and after three years he had an awakening. He moved on to find a new addiction and in his words, difficult relationships with women. He was attracted to women with their history as a path to finding healing for his mother. In 2004, he left Australia and for a few years and travelled the Middle East and Asia. He met another inappropriate woman and followed her to Zimbabwe and Africa. And that is where the big adventure begins. It was the opportunity for Aaron to express his passion and leave a mark on the world. It was his habit to say yes to every opportunity, and he discovered he had a natural talent to tune into animal behaviour. Working with wild elephants and lions, his specialism was animal conflict zones. How do you convince a 10-ton bull elephant to move on? Sadly, he witnessed a lot of corruption in this conservation industry, and began calling it out. It made him politically unpopular. 
often thwarted, he did what he could for the animals and stayed around the conservation industry for a while. But now with a young family, he was looking for less travel and a better income. Farming looked interesting. It was a permanent location and was better paid than conservation. Aaron secured a managing role on a chicken farm and discovered yet more corruption. The business was losing over $2 million a year. It became a crusade to show that it was possible to make the farm work and he was good. He turned the $250,000 profit in just 60 days just by stopping the theft and payments. Yet again he was ruffling more feathers and this time the numbers were bigger and the stakes were even higher. The fighter in Aaron would not let go and he chose to make a stand. We're talking about death threats and intimidation as armed men turned up on the farm. When corruption is that deep and systemic, the system fights for its survival. Aaron was targeted with physical violence and eventually arrested on a range of trumped-up charges. After his arrest and a beating, he found himself as the only white guy in an African prison, a 6 meter by 15 meter cell that you share with 75 other guys. When we started this conversation, I was under the impression that we were talking 10 years ago. Not so. This is recent. Aaron only left Zimbabwe in January 2020. It is a fascinating insight into the workings and troubles of Zimbabwe and other African countries. Aaron's refusal to back down came as a huge personal cost, his relationship and his children. The rest of our conversation is about that journey, his learning from the experience and his new mission, which is to help people define what it means to be a better man or woman and create a better future for children and families. Let's join the conversation with Aaron Young. Aaron, thank you for being with me today. Paul, thank you for the opportunity. I'm looking forward, although I got in a little trepidation there. The way you looked at me, I thought, whoa, he's going to go in deep here, which is good. I like that. Challenge me. Uh, I think we have to be challenged. That's that's the point. You know, uh, you know, my, my role is to hear what you have to say and then to push you in the bit you don't want to talk about. hundred <laughs> percent. And, you know, this is one of the things I'm on about, with, especially with men at the moment. We, we are built to be challenged. And when we're challenged, we excel. When we're not challenged, we sort of sort of cruise a little. But in the area we're talking about, though, men don't. That's the point. Men no. don't actually talk about this stuff no. that often, uh, no. which is why I'm in the midlife in midlife conversation. I think the same as you. We're both in a, in a, in a similar area yeah. of yeah. of challenging men to be more than they are because I think we yeah. settle anyway. Look, let's not get into that yet because it's <laughs> too early. Yeah. Aaron, this is life, passion and business. What's the journey been? Where did it all start for you? Because I know you've had an interesting journey. Where are you from, for starters? Because I know you're in Australia now. So I'm I'm Australian. I'm Australian born and bred. Um, I spent most of my life here up until my 30s when after jet-setting Asia and most of the South Pacific and just enjoying life, I decided to put foot to the Middle East. I didn't have a job. I just went over there on a flight of fancy, got a job. Um, fell in love, fell out of love quite a few times, which is a common <laughs> thread for my journey. Um, and then, yeah, everything took a dark turn, you could say, when I fell in love with a woman from Africa, followed her there and got stuck there for almost 11 years. And I guess that's where the journey got got purpose. That's where the purpose came in. Okay, so that's where the business, I guess, and where the passion became more purposeful prior to that obviously with an incredibly unique childhood and you know crime and drugs and all the other stupidity in my life there was always a trajectory but then it really hit this point where the purpose kicked in sort of africa 
So, I mean, all right, so you've just mentioned a couple of points there, which are interesting, you know, crime and drugs and bits and pieces, because crime and drugs is always interesting to talk about. Uh, so, so, I mean, what was that? Is that a, a misspent youth in, in Australia? Yeah, basically what it was is obviously I had an addict mother and I grew up in a, quite a bizarre and unique setting. And I, I guess I grew up in terror. And what most men I've found do that grow up in an environment where there is a lot of fear, as soon as they become... Uh, surrounded by peers they turn fear into anger so i turned that because you're not going to walk around fearful your whole life are you no. i mean we've all got to puff our chest well, out you, and pretend and pretend no, to play yeah. that game yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and so and, and and so you turn that fear into anger it's the natural progression of of a young man so i became very angry and also very um i gave up very early in life because a lot of the stuff i'd seen pre-sort of 10 so crime was natural because funnily enough and you hear this a lot and you see it in the movies um the men in crime tend to offer a family and it sounds really bizarre but the truth was the guys that I ran around with were tight-knit and they taught me to take a punch and they taught me things that I just didn't my mother was absent my entire life she was beyond worse than absent and so these people were appealing and I wanted to look I wanted to prove myself you know and sad as it was that's that's I guess there's brothership in the violence isn't there I wanted to be in I wanted to join the military and right. I was I was basically not allowed because I was colorblind. So I wanted to join the Air Force. And so my alternative to joining the forces was to become a criminal for a while, which is But you I, I can see I mean I'm just just thinking this out. I mean you think about you you can you can see why gang culture would work because it's yeah. like you know, because we we us the yes. brothers support each other and them the enemy. We can get them and and, and like you know, and it's like you can see how that violence and that that thing would kind of sustain itself. Yeah, and, and it is it's all about this idea of a brotherhood. See, we are still primal creatures. Even though we've removed and stripped a lot of that mm. primal energy, we are still built with the same DNA we were when we were cavemen. And there was a tribal aspect to us, no matter what colour or race we were from. There was just that element because we hunted to survive. We don't have it anymore. So this is why the armed forces is appealing. This is why this gang stuff is appealing. It's why these things of having a guy beside you you're prepared to take anything for is important, especially in the younger years when guys have very little direction, you know. It's, it's being driven towards a work and a career and do, 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 and, and really they just want to go still kick a ball, you know. And, you know what I mean? So, yeah, for me, it was good. It was short-lived. I got very extreme very quickly, and I dodged a lot of bullets. And a, 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 a lot uh, do you of mean bullets time. as in real bullets, or do you mean? Uh, oh, only that was a couple of times, and not at me in in a random area. Yes, they were, but it was very childlike. It wasn't like you know, not what you see in the states. There's none of that sort of stuff. It was kind of silliness, you know. So you just mean, and you mean you dodged some some difficult situations where you could have got badly hurt. You mean? Yeah, yeah, a lot of knives, knives pulled, and you know, a, a lot of big standoffs with the wrong types of people of different ethnic races because that's what a lot of the crime was where i was it was islanders versus lebanese versus the vietnamese it was all very and and then you had all these little skinny white kids in the middle of it because <laughs> we we didn't have a gang you know like we were nobody <laughs> so they tended to stick there was there'd be a little skinny white kid in the vietnamese there'd be another one in the, in the lebanese there'd be another one with the islanders that's what it was because you know you know you look at us as Caucasians. We don't have a lot of culture, so we tried to hijack and jump into everyone. Is this else. Australia you're talking about? Yeah, this is in Australia. No, this is a, this is this is a side of Australia I never heard of. I didn't know. I didn't even know it existed. You're break, oh, You're breaking some myths here. <laughs> oh, yeah, look, it, it's small pockets. You know, if you look at it compared to the other parts of the world, I've been. It, it's actually almost laughable about what you'd call crime rates in Australia. But it was for me. It was very real. You know, it was it was again tapping into the fear. 
and the anger and keeping me on the edge, which is where, you know, I got addicted to being for a very long time. Mm. So what got you out of that? I mean, you know, because that gang culture is quite, quite, you know, quite close-knit and pervasive. You don't leave it that easily. Yeah, I think the truth was there was always this underlying part of me, and I don't, I don't want to go into the depths of, you know, spirituality too soon, but the idea of whether it's a soul or a spirit or something guiding me, you know, that, that kept me looking outside so i would run headlong for six months or a year and then all of a sudden i would have these you know moments of epiphany or moments of alone time where i would look and go this is just not this is not it or i'd see my nana who was my guiding light you know that the woman was tough as nails but she was that one who could say a sentence that stuck with me and so after about three years of it i literally that's how quick i was like no this is not for me but you know then I dive from that into a, into a woman, and this is where my my addictions, my addictive personality kicked in. You know, this is where I, I literally left that life to follow females, basically to follow relationships. Hmm. Did that work for you? No, not at all. <laughs> it was of all the of all the addictions I messed with messed around with. It was by far the most destructive. It also taught me the most. Yeah. Because I was trying, I was I was trying to fix my mum. I was trying to help my mum. You know, I, from the day I was born to, to even now to this day, I still have that part of me that wants to give her some salvation and peace in her life. And so I, I hunted out, searched for, and when presented with two choices of a credibly stable, healthy partner and a non-stable drug addict or alcohol, I, every single time a coconut we say in Africa, I went for choice B. And I did that for a long time, you know. And the mm. reality was, is I, and I, what I did was I blamed them on that journey. And it took me 15 years or so to learn it was never their fault. What, it was to clarify, what, just to clarify, what was wrong? With, what was the issue with your mum? Was, was she just... Oh, she, 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 she's, a, she's an addict. I can't say she's not anymore because she still sadly is in the grip of it. It's not the same things that it was when she was young. She was a stripper when I was younger. Um, she's never spoken about it, but I think it's quite evident to me knowing 47 what I do and the people I work with that she suffered some pretty serious trauma as a young girl. Yeah. Um, she was a disconnected mother. She would run away all of a sudden and there'd be no one home. Um, I had a little sister to try and raise and protect from that. There was a lot of strange men, a lot of strange men um, and a lot of abuse, basically. Yeah. A lot of physical, yeah. mental for, for 10 years, just pretty much just was terrified. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and she's, a, she's a product of her upbringing. That's, that's what it comes down to, isn't it? We've all got to realise that you can't demonise a parent because the parent usually repeats what was done to them. Yeah. And when you, when you demonise that parent, what you do is you basically do yourself to almost repeat yeah. parts of their behaviour. may not be the drug addict, but you will maintain some of their behavioural traits and you will pass them on. So you've got to be it cautious. It is amazing that I turned out the way I did because both my parents were war babies. Mm. And both of my parents also came from... from um, victorianized parents edwardian victorian parents who believed in in you know in in physical restriction physical encouragement shall we say that's a nice one <laughs> my, my grand my grandfather used to use the razor strap he used to have a razor strap on the back oh, of us and, and, and he would and he would kind of like it would be across the back and you know yeah. so 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 i anyway I, I never experienced any violence or anything from my parents they uh, so i have to you know bless them for not actually repeating that you do because it is a big deal when someone stops that generational mm. or that ancestral behavior because this is what we see a lot of now and it may not be as extreme but it's amazing how much 
we repeat the sins of the father for want of a better description and mm. people just headlong follow on. And it may not be that we're hitting anymore, but it's, it can be for a man, that same disconnected fathering mentality of, Oh, I don't, I don't deal with the kids. That's mum's job. I just got to work and bring home the money. That sort of attitude that, you know, in this country, especially still persists when men don't get challenged and they get stuck in an easy life, which the developed first world offers an incredibly easy existence. They don't have to change. Nothing forces them to. They, they never have their backs up against the wall long enough to ever have to really look hard at who they are, what they stand mm. for. And so they just go, you know, I'll ride with it. <laughs> okay, so look, you've obviously had a bit of a journey here. You've, you've, you've tried the women bit and you tried to, cr- tried to change all these amazing women that you met and that didn't work out for you. Mm. What happened next? Oh, well, I kept, I kept, do it. I kept doing <laughs> it. But, but what I did was... Did you, when did you, had you left Australia at this point? Yeah, so I left in 2004 and yeah. I did a, a, few years, a few years in the Middle East and I met an incredible woman there who I followed back to Africa. But sadly, right. she, was, she was the last of the – she appeared on the surface. She was a lovely woman. I've got to be very cautious with her. I say this. She was and still is an incredible woman. She had a bit of a substance abuse problem. She wasn't like the previous ones and hers was a lot sneakier, so it caught me by surprise. Um, it also got me, got me to Africa and got – Africa into me because that's what happens with Africa so sadly we split and I spent my time adventuring you know chasing elephants you know becoming an elephant behavior specialist oh wow yes yeah but again just by accident um by my natural nature of not saying no to any opportunity yeah so I spent years developing tools to help uh, uh, elephants and conflict zones with humans trying to oh wow that's fascinating well so were you teaching the elephants were you yeah, so basically we devised tools that kept elephants out of conflict with humans. Elephants have been treading migratory routes for thousands of years. Yeah, of course. Passed yeah. down from generation to generation. Humans build a city in that. The elephant, he doesn't go around it. No, they go through. Yeah, the females and the matriarch herds with the youngsters will tend to keep their distance from humans until they can be proven that it's safe. But the, the bulls, he, he stops for no man. Yeah, and so he and what happens is he adapts very quickly. So he now starts eating out of trash cans. He starts, you know, rooting around in vehicles and trucks. And there was a particular place I worked called Chirundu, which is on the border of Zimbabwe and Zambia. And there were elephants there that people had had pictures of for forty years. These elephants had grown up with their children. This was a popular holiday spot, and national parks up there decided that they were becoming a problem. So they start shooting them, basically killing them. And I didn't like it, so. I started an organisation. I took my tools up there and we started working in this environment and started proving that what we were doing could work and that you didn't have to shoot them anymore. So we did that for quite a long time. How do you persuade a, you know, a, a, a 10 ton <laughs> elephant to go a different direction? I mean, you, know, you, don't, okay, ask, so, you don't ask nicely, do you? <laughs> no, you don't ask nicely. So, so we worked with a guy who um, had developed a, a chilli resin. So it's Tabasco sauce times 10,000. Oh, yeah, that, 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 that one... That, that will change. Yeah, you? On, on the heat scale. And then we filled ping pong balls with it. And then we invented a PVC gun. So, you know, PVC tubing. Yeah. So it was a gun. We used any sort of propellant, whether it be deodorant, sprayed it into a canister with a taser. The yep. taser would trigger. It would ignite the, the uh, deodorant. That would give us a propellant. And we would shoot these ping pong balls, the elephants, as soon as they crossed into the borders of town and what we deemed the boundary. And so what we were doing is we were creating a boundary for them. Because obviously to an elephant with the most sensitive sense of smell, for him to get a whiff of that yeah. in his trunk was, you know. Not pleasant. Tantamount. Not at all. And they didn't like it. But, you know, the funny thing was 
and this is the thing with elephants, people talk about them, there's a lot of anecdotal discussions about their memories. And I chased those elephants around, myself and another a gentleman by Nick, for a very long time. And we were hammering them with these things, sometimes hitting them two or three or four times before they would leave, standing on the ground, you know, trying to come at us. I would set up my tent in this little fishing camp just outside of town. These elephants would come and sleep outside my tent. They knew I was the one chasing them. They knew the sound of the vehicle. They knew my scent. And yet they still came. And the only thing they would ever do when they came into camp is if they saw the table where we used to fill the ping pong balls as they would pick it up and throw in the river. But yet they never attacked or came near and they never did because I believe this and I'm, it's only proof I've got is my own anecdotal here is they know your intention. They understood on some sort of level that we've got forgotten because we would have had it back in the old days. We would have had this built into us. It's in there. It explains my ability to track elephants with no with no training. Um, there's a connection there, and they know. Yes, it was incredible work, but at times heartbreaking. I'd say once we had to stop for political reasons, I don't think there's one of those elephant left now. I think they've killed every single one of them. I'm sure. In fact, every elephant I've pretty much ever worked with, I'm almost certain is almost all of them are dead now, which is... <clears throat> which is sad because I got very close to some of them and they were like family to me. Hmm. Yeah, it is sad. And, and that's what humanity's got to deal with. We've got to find a solution for this because the current process ain't going to work. No, it ain't. And the truth is if we continue on this path, we are this one of arrogance, selfishness and disconnection from what is the very system, Mother Nature, that supports us. Whether you're a hippie or whether you're a guy in a suit with a Ferrari, you can't deny the fact that we're connected to a greater system and it's, it's nature. And if we keep acting the way we are, yeah, sadly, it's not looking good. <laughs> but one thing I've always, always had and always been very good at is hope. Yeah. There is always. With people yeah. like us talking and doing what we're doing, whether it be in the field of this or the field of what I did, we're talking now and we weren't doing that before. So it's a very good start. I'm getting sucked into a, into a, into a, into a vortex here and I could easily end up having a completely different conversation because it's, it's, you know, you and I are obviously, obviously in tune on a lot of this stuff, but I need to be careful. And so, tell, <laughs> so, okay, you, 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 you spent some time shooting ping pong balls at elephants, which does sound fascinating. What happened from after that? Um, so from there, I, I ran into, you know, I was causing a bit of a political storm because yeah. I'm, a, um, I'm a crusader right? and I've got no problem going toe-to-toe with corrupt politicians and things like that because very respectfully, I'm a very humble person so, and I never wanted the limelight. So I was very easy to push people but then step <clears> back just before I, I went too far. So I went to war with the NGOs. So that's a not-for-profit organisations in Africa. I was trying to get funding for our project Long story short, no one would touch you because they want a year or two years warning. So they'll give you the money, but you apply now and you wait two years. And I said, in two years, we wouldn't have an elephant left. <clears throat> so I went to war with them and I called them out and basically saw a bunch of wealthy British, uh, French, Italian, American, Australian, um, educated men running around getting paid massive salaries to oversee projects that were failing. And then the one would fail and then they'd move to the next one and then it would fail. And this was this ongoing, basically siphoning of hundreds of millions, especially of EU funding into Africa that was basically being stolen because there was never a return on the investment. No. Never. <clears throat> no, never, did the, never did a project achieve its goal 
as soon as there was a vacuum. So for four years, they would overfund it. And while they were present, it would work. And then they would go, oh, we've done our job and they'd leave. Within a month of them leaving, the entire project had faulted and fallen over. The equipment was stolen, everything was gone. And so that was 7 million. And so what would happen six months later is they'd come in and they just re-host that same project and do the exact same thing again. And they knew what they were doing. <clears throat> and everyone and everyone got and everyone got paid they, their bits. That's right. And everyone, and this has been going on for probably 30 years. And it's it's a it's a known fact, but the problem is in the deepest, darkest parts of Africa, they're all getting paid. So no one says anything. But the the things I saw are beyond disturbing, you know, sometimes beyond the sort of wholesale slaughter of the animals I saw. Um, so anyway, I, I did that and then I got chased off a little bit and I, I took that as a warning and I went and worked with veterinarian teams. So I was still in conservation, but what I was doing now is I was helping vets respond to emergency call outs. So if there was a wounded elephant, you know, say he was gunshot or snare, they get caught in poachers snares quite frequently. I'd go out and I'd track the animal. So I'd track elephant, track lion, uh, track zebra, track whatever it was. And then we call the vets in and the vets would immobilize and we would <coughs> operate in the field. So we would, you know, knock them out, cut them open, do whatever we had to do, get them back on their feet and send them on their way. Um, in, in that, I, I accidentally became a lion expert in that problem lions are shot. They're just considered a problem. You bullet them because they're a problem animal with the potential to hurt a human. Mm. I, I became the go-to guy when people didn't want to shoot them anymore. So and I would get a call, Aaron, we've got a problem lion in there. Can you go in and trap it and relocate it? So I did that, shot some beautiful footage, which is all over. It was on Sky News. You guys got that footage over there <clears throat> of working with families of lions who would, you know, maraud certain areas, going in, trapping, relocating them. Did that. Um, and then I left conservation because it doesn't pay. There's absolutely no money in it. I had two little babies in my life now. And I did something um, that changed my life forever. And that was I went farming. Any one of your listeners who knows about Zimbabwe or formerly called Rhodesia and what happened there in the early 2000s where the farming community was pretty much slaughtered and shot and killed and who wasn't had to leave. So um, I went farming, you know, changing Zimbabwe, what I thought was the past was the past. And I thought I could help build a model farm and recreate an environment that could show corruption was no longer needed. And theft wasn't an acceptable part of doing business in Africa and um, and I did very well. I took a $2 million farm, uh, a, lot, a loss of 2 million US. I'd never been on a farm, never farmed in my life, just to make that clear. And in, in 60 days, I'd made a quarter of a million US net profit. Why? And, How did that um, Because basically it's a chicken farm. So without going into the number <laughs> okay. of chicken, chicken 240,000 yeah. 240, birds, yeah. all you got to do is be present and That's stop right. the theft. That's stop it. the corruption. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so, so as soon as I went to war with with the with the theft and the corruption, and I stopped it all and turned everything into a you know tight knit group of staff, it was easy to make a profit. The problem was is I'd now stepped into the political arena by accident again because the people who were being paid bribes and the people who were in cahoots with one of the directors had been being paid a lot of money for a long time. I mean, there was two million dollars missing over two years. That money had been been siphoned out in other ways. And I wasn't prepared to back down. You know, the crusader in me wanted to see this as a model example of what could be done. And I really genuinely believed that with my personality type, I was able. My staff were incredible. I built this beautiful 
court system. So I took the court system out of the politics and I put it onto the farm. So we went back to some of the cultural heritage of them dealing with their own problems instead of it being done with outside, removing alcohol, you know, just generally trying to remodel this thing to give them mm. a better life. But the politicians didn't like it. So they came gunning for me. And this time, yeah, they came gunning literally. And so, yeah, I fought, I fought that. Uh, for a few months and then the death threats got really severe. It got really bad. They threatened to kill all my staff. They pitched up and the amount of times I had to deal with that sort of threat, death uh, threat looming over me, started to break me. And I'm not a drinker, but I started drinking. Um, and then I started drinking quite heavily. And then I went, you know, back to the mother of my kids at this point, said, I've got to leave. You know, this is getting, and they're like, no, 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 this is Zimbabwe. Don't worry. These guys, you'll be fine. Just stick it out. This is an incredible opportunity. What you're doing there is amazing. Eventually I cracked, hey? Um, the death threats got severe. I was being blamed now by the white community because I was being used by one of the directors as a shield for his um, abuse of, of black politicians. And they were now calling me a racist, which I wasn't. Was far from it. Yeah, and the long story short of that is one day I went AWOL for two for 48 hours, left the farm, and then never went back again. And um, it's just one of those bittersweet things because what I did there and what I created an example I put was something that may not ever happen again. I mean, that's pretty arrogant to say that, but that's how much I created and that's how proud I was of the moments I'd had with those people and what was possible. But then, you know, eight months later for my troubles, the short of it was I, I was set up and um, beaten the shit out of for 48 hours and then thrown into an African prison for the first time. Wow. Yeah, because, you know, the politicians who I, I guess, embarrassed um, that I'd cut off the supply of funds to before now came gunning for me and they wanted my blood. And they, well, they didn't want my blood. You know, that's actually a very dramatic. They wanted me out of the country. Mm. They didn't want. They didn't want my blood. If they wanted my blood, they could have done. But they killed you, wouldn't they? But they didn't. They, want a exactly. They, they, they didn't want a martyr. So they uh, or, no. or, or or someone who would then uh, killing you would have actually made it more of a problem because people would have started it, investigating. It, w- it would have too, and also the car- the country Zimbabwe is not like most parts of Africa. The tribe who run it, who were put there by the British, are not your warring Zulu types from South Africa. They're much more an agricultural tribe and very level-headed. They've got the highest literacy literacy rates. You know, they're very different. They also, this is scenario, they were scared to death of me as well. (laughs) You know, there was belief that I had juju, which is black magic. You know, in the height of the farm invasion site, at the end of my time there, they they had a witch doctor and this guy was collecting sand from my footprints and putting curses on me. And this guy was telling them that I had juju, that I had magic power. And this is why I was able to do the things I was. It was why I was so good with elephants. It's why I could work with lions. Ah, yes, of course. That working with the animals would really, yeah. hold, really, really scare people, wouldn't it? Yeah, and so they were, so they were scared. So they just wanted me gone. And that, and yeah. the thing is, in Zimbabwe, juju and and nungas and the witch doctors is still incredibly potent magic. Hey, eh? I mean, you'll find the most intelligent, gifted man in that country in a suit that's worth ten grand driving a Bentley still believes and will have his own personal witch doctor. Right. They still believe it. And so no one wanted to. And also, this is another thing they didn't like, tattoos. I'm considered the painted man right. in Shona. So in Shoshono and Shona, which is the governing tribe of Zimbabwe, I'm a painted man. Now, back in their history, painted man were the Maasai and the Zulu who used to come and steal their women and their cattle. Right. So I was a bit of a just a taboo. That's, that was probably one of the reasons I got away with my time there. 
So how did they, what did they get you for? They obviously put you in prison? Or oh, was it- yeah, yeah. They put, they, so they came, picked me up, tried to get me to get on a plane. They just wanted me out. And I said, I'm not leaving. It's not happening. And so they tried to to coerce me. What, what how did you call it? Physical persuasion. <laughs> <laughs> but they tried that. That didn't work. And then they charged me with fraud, counterfeiting, um, four or five immigration charges, and a whole bunch. By the time I made it to the court system four days later, it was about five charges. One of them, the big one, was the fraud. Right. Which which was ten years. All up, it was about thirteen and a half years worth of prison time. Okay. But being being Africa. Very quickly, I found a, an avenue to bribe, and I bribed um, someone who allowed me out on bail, which was not a condition. It should never have happened. I should have easily gone straight into prison and served time, or I should have been kicked out. And so I got out of prison the first time, and I decided to fight them. So instead of taking the option of leaving gracefully and exiting the country, I went to court every single week for about 10 months the whole time paying bribes to anyone and everyone who I thought needed to be greased so that I could stay with my kids because my aim then was to not enter into the political realm was to just take a little tight job and just be, I was dad. Yeah. I was at this point in my life, everything had just completely changed and I just wanted to be a father. Yeah. I love that's my, my greatest, my greatest gift in this life is being a dad. Um, and so, yeah, for 10 months I, I paid, and I paid magistrate and I paid the public prosecutor and I paid every official you can think of. Um, and then on my day of sentencing, I was supposed to go home with about $2,000 in fines. And this was agreed. And this was part of all my bribing structure. But someone paid, um, them, someone paid them more, no doubt. No, my, my solicitor didn't pay the bribe. He was setting me up. My solicitor knew all the way along that the chances were I would never, ever get that deal cut. So he just paid enough to the right people to not have me locked up while the court was on. And then that day I went dressed nicely thinking I'm going home. <clears throat> Although if I'm honest, my gut was telling me I was in shit. I, I, I had this feeling I hadn't slept the night before. I did. There was this overall fear of, whoa. But I went in there like I normally do. Um, you know, shoulders back, head held high. I'm going to get through this. I'll make it. And yeah, I didn't. I went back into the cells that afternoon and my solicitor came and said, no, no, there's a mistake. It's fine. You could just, just do one night and then we'll get you out. And then he bolted. And the next day I got a message in saying you know, the solicitor's gone. There's two and a half grand he's got. We're trying to chase him down to get the last year money back. There's been threats made. Yeah, and, and I, I was kicking and screaming in prison saying, oh, I'm not supposed to be here. You know, you, I was screaming at them and swearing at them. You know, this is me, this is one white guy in amongst in this prison, six and a half thousand you know, Africans. And I'm, all, and I'm in there telling the guards that they're pieces of shit and, you know, they're scum and, you know, they're corrupt. And I'm just, you know, doing my typical. Mm. And because I think I'm getting out any day now and I'm going to just get whisked out, I'm just laying it on like some, you know, you must have another got, one of those. You must have got your shit kicked out of you at that point. I no, they they went to a couple of times, but my first time in prison, I stamped my authority pretty thickly. Hey? And guards don't run the prisons in Zimbabwe. The prisoners do. There's only in a prison in a prison section, there might be three thousand prisoners. There might be ten guards. Wow. Yeah, and 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 so you've got no hope. The only way they keep anything running is by the prisoners and by, there's money by, by agreements. Yeah, exactly. It's all by agreement, by money, because the prisoners are money. You have to remember that in Zimbabwe, most of your government officials or, or um, public service, they don't get paid. They've got a nice uniform and they may be related to someone. Usually they are related to someone, so they got the job. They aren't getting paid. Yeah, we're talking about the third poorest country in the world here. 
with you know dictatorship after dictatorship, which has destroyed a once incredibly beautiful and wealthy country, you know, um, and there was no money, and yet you got prisoners. Think of all that money that's coming in to keep them going. You know, a lot of them were prison were political prisoners. A lot of them were ex-military mm-hmm. who switched sides against Mugabe. Mm-hmm. So there was money. And so, you know, if you could get a carton of cigarettes in, you were God. Mm-hmm. And I was a white guy and I had the connection. So, you know, I got in there and I had very quickly, I had, I had loaf of, you know, loaf of fresh bread. You know, I was eating better than the guards some days. Wow. Yes. Yeah. You know, that's how bad the country had gotten i guess you still had you had money that's the point wasn't it you had money outside. yeah well, I, and i had supporters you know i had people coming in you know mm. and the truth is everyone who would come and see me would bring three cartons of cigarettes right so you know by day seven i was sitting on you know gold you were yeah you were weren't you yeah, yeah. wow yeah yeah so, so how long did was, you how long did you end up staying in here uh first time i only did just shy of a month second time the same so in okay. total, it wasn't it wasn't a lot of time, and and I was very lucky that both times, <clears throat> I clicked up with an Ethiopian and a South Sudanese guy, who to this day are like brothers to me, and they're still rotting in there, political prisoners. Both their countries had abandoned them there and left them to be basically mm. to disappear, without charge. They've not neither of them have been charged. They've just been rotting in that in that in that shithole. Um, what do prisoners do in these environments? Are they? Are they? Well, do, they do they read? What do they do? What yeah, do they do? no, not basically. Well, I'll tell you from my experience what we did, and that was you're locked down um, from four p.m. in the afternoon until nine a.m. the next morning. Um, read, talk, play cards, play chess, um, homemade chess sets, mainly talk. Really, and you know, there's a lot of a lot of religious talk in there. It's interesting because you know you're surrounded by 400 different opinions, you know, and, and also the sections of the prison I was in were a lot of foreigners. So there was an African from every single African country you can think of in my cell almost, and if not my cell, in the two cells beside me. So sitting in a six by fifteen cell with 75 guys, you get quite close to people whether you like it or not, you know. Mm-hmm. So you talk. You know, you do a lot of talking. You talk about what the world's like. I did a lot of jailhouse lawyering, you know, trying to help guys with their charges. I did a lot of talk about addiction, about alcohol to these guys because alcohol is a big, big problem in many Mm. parts of Africa, the poorer parts of Africa. Um, And we planned how to overthrow the world. You know, John Aieli is from the Amara tribe, the Ethiopian guy. He's royalty, but he's from the wrong tribe. So Aieli looks like an Egyptian. So you're a typical Ethiopian. He's a very skin, dark skin looking. The Ethiopians don't look like that. That's not the original ruling tribe of Ethiopia. They're, they're basically an offshoot of Egyptian. They look like Egyptians. Mm. Chiseled, six foot two, something like you'd see in like sort of, you know, a movie. Mm. Um, and, you know, he always said when he gets out and he gets to go back home, he said, oh, I was going to be his defence minister. And then in Sudan, I'm going to be the environment minister because, you know, John always convinced he was going back to take over Sudan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you did a lot of that, you know, you, you, a lot of that. And guys would come and go. So Garnons would come and they were always incredibly funny. So you'd talk to them and you'd plot what you were going to try and eat, get some boiling water to make a cup of tea or a jug of tea that we could share, you know, like everything comes down. It's a beautiful training. You know, I, I teach meditation in, in respecting the moment because everything comes down to very, very finite pieces of time. Like I can remember moments where I was sitting underneath a window trying to meditate, you know, eyes open, an eye open meditation and a, a bird feather flew in 
There was a ray of sunlight and this feather almost hovered for about two or three minutes as it flew gently across the cell. Perfect in, example of being in the moment, you know, and this is with a cacophony of sound, you know, like people screaming and carrying on. And um, I remember moments of feeling, you know, immense joy of being in there, sitting with these two guys and going, you know what, I've, I've travelled the world and rarely have I met two men of such honourable standing. And I'm sitting in a rotten prison that hasn't been cleaned in 45 years, mm. you know, not sure of my fate. And these guys probably don't know if they'll ever get out. And I, I was immensely grateful. And then, and then, and then the next, you know, hour you'd be internally screaming because mm. you want it out because the noise of, se- of 75 guys <clears throat> in six by 15 meter cell is sometimes soul splitting. Mm. You just want quiet. You know, and I had to sometimes hold myself still to stop myself from standing up and going, just shut the, you know what I mean? Like it was, mm. it was, I don't know what to call it. I don't know, I think there's a word that really. Wow, that is certainly a journey. Mm. And what got you out of it all? What got me out of it all? Mm. How'd you get out in the end? Well, in the end, um, the mother of my kids came to visit me in prison once after the setup had been found out and they'd caught the lawyer and got a little bit of that money back that he'd run off with. And when she came in, I was dressed in prison rags this time. And when I say rags, like you're not even covered and it's winter and it's sort of two below at night. And she just broke into tears and she started crying and saying, you know, you can't do this. And I said, well, I'm going to fight the charges. I'll, I'll stay. You know, I can deal with this. No problem. When she got out, she started conspiring with a few other people who made some calls and there was a plea offered that if I left the country immediately and paid a sizable chunk of money, I could dodge the charges and the 10 years that they wanted prison time. So against my wishes originally, but I think probably underneath, I I was sort of like, it was the wisest thing for them to have done is they paid and I was told that I was going to be deported. Mm. So my kids didn't know. My kids thought I was in the bush. They were told. To this day, they still don't know I've been deported been to prison Mm -hmm. and so i went um yeah i went from being a dad to being a prisoner to being forcibly deported at gunpoint back to australia coming back to a country i hadn't been in 15 years Mm -hmm. yeah how did australia receive you yeah it it actually incredibly well i mean um it, it enforced the gratitude i have and i think anyone should have for living in a developed country Mm. I got back and everything I could have possibly needed was right there. Yeah, I had to go work for it. I had to go and find yeah, it and to talk to people and I had to go and do something. I didn't just, just sit on my ass, but if I needed it and I wanted it, it was all there. Did you have a did you have a seat in it when you got back to Australia? No, it- I had a half-brother I hadn't seen since he was about five. Mm-hmm. Um, that was it. But that was enough, actually. And I had a friend, a good friend that I grew up with since I was five. He met me at the airport initially and then I stayed in backpackers hostels and then moved my way up north, up to where I to where I am now. Um, but after four weeks of being here, I didn't feel Australian, and I was missing my kids terribly. So I, I did something. I'm not sure if it was what wise or not, but I hopped on a plane and I went back to Africa. <gasps> I went back. <laughs> yeah, I did. I went. I went back. So Zimbabwe has um, some neighbors, neighboring countries, and one of them is Mozambique on its eastern border. So I, I went back to Mozambique. I found a job. And then I proceeded to illegally smuggle myself across the border into Zimbabwe so I could go and spend Christmas with my kids and say goodbye properly and 
try and explain to them what had happened without obviously going into the, the murky details of it all, which I did. And so I spent Christmas of 2019 with my kids. And their mother then said to me, I'll follow you back to Australia. And I was like, so I went back to Mozambique, packed the job in, came back here and then COVID hit. Yeah. And yeah, I haven't seen my kids since January 4, 2020. Wow. Yeah, but I will. It's, 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 it's. So you've not got your, your kids are not with you now? No, 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 no. They're not. They're with me. They're up here. That's the my shrine. My kids are, my kids are always with me. I'm, I'm, it's funny. I'm really good with this normally. I carry it very well. But I have moments like once a month or once every six weeks where I'll have a day or two where it's, I've been, I've, it's been explained to me that it's a process of grief, mm. but my process never ends because the person hasn't gone. Yeah. And so for me, it's something that, you know, I'm learning to empower myself with still. I hadn't realized this was so recent. I, I, I had a sense this was back in time, but you, you've just said it's, it's only happened in the last three or four years, this stuff. And it's like, yeah, yeah. And I'm thinking, because yeah. I, I thought you were talking at the turn of, you know, the turn of, I thought you were talking a while ago. You're not. So no. it's, so Africa is still in a mess for the sounds of it. It's still, it's still in the same throes of dealing with corruption and difficulty. Oh, everything. It's, it's the only difference is it's painted a little bit nicer now. But it's no different. Yeah. I, I say it's no different. I mean, I've got to be careful not to be jaded by my own experience. No, there I'm are, sure. There is potential there, but the truth is corruption has become such a systemic uh, way of life that the chances of breaking it are so slim because now a child is raised to understand that you need to be corrupt to get ahead. Once you start training a child at the age of 10 that he needs to accept that there is a payment to be made for everything in life, you're going to struggle to break that because it's now become generationally accepted. And, and I can tell you right now that I talk about corruption and whenever I've talked about this, I, was as, I had to become as corrupt. To live in Africa, you become corrupt. There is no such thing as a person that lives on that continent that is not corrupt. That well, it's not corruption. Nature. It's not corruption at that point, is it? It's the system. No, it's the you system. Know, it's, we call it corruption in ours but it's not it's not it's just the process it's how it works yeah it is and and that's what you do and, and the way i looked at it and the way i justified it to myself and when i got back and you talk to people and i'd say well it's no different to australia the only difference is it's it's obvious because you've got corruption here but the more i've settled back into the first world the more i've realized mm. yes there's corruption in australia i'm not going to deny the first world has tons of it but it's not the same it's not, no, it's, it's not, not quite systemic, is it? As, as, no, it's not as it's not as ingrained. Whereas mm. in, in Africa, it's part of everything you do. You know, you to get fuel. You know, you, you often pay you pay a guy or someone steals fuel and you buy it out of his backyard. Everything that you do, um, especially if you're in a in a privileged sense, and this doesn't mean white. This means basically if you've got money. And well, trust money, me, yeah. there's way more wealthy Africans than there is uh, Caucasians left there. So it's not about race or anything. It is basically about dollars. And that's what Africa is about, power and money. You rule with by an iron fist because that's just the tribal way and it always will be just because there's lovely country names that were put there by the colonials hasn't changed the tribal makeup of the continent. It is still driven by tribes. You don't hear about that. When you hear of a civil war, it's tribal. Yeah, this is all of that continent. Every bit of disaster you'll see is all because 
or let's just say an outside influence entered the continent and picked a side, which happened from, you know, all over the Middle East, they had the same problems. But what they did was they picked the weaker side, gave them guns. And so that they then rose to power with a little bit of a, you know, tap, tap from behind by a, a, an external influence. Um, and then that part of that, giving them the guns and helping them with that tap, tap forward was, you know, hang on, we want your gold, we want your diamonds, mm. we want your... And, and that's what Af- that's what's become of Africa. And it's still going on because now oh, we're giving it, now we're giving everybody sophisticated systems and saying, oh, we want your resources, we want your oh, we want your precious man. metals, we want your mining oh, rights. You know, it's so. incredible. The ch- and the chi- and the, the modern day colonizers of Africa, the Chinese, China. they just man, the entire there's not an airport in Southern Africa not owned by the Chinese. There's not a freeway, a highway, the whole lot. It's just all of it's Chinese and they own all the gold mines. They own all the diamond, the platinum, the copper, the zinc, the graphite, you name it. They'll put a lot of white guys up front sometimes. It doesn't look so obvious, but the truth be known is everyone knows the leases, you know, there's copies of the leases. It's so corrupt that even the corruption finds its way out. So when a lease is signed by the Zimbabwe military with, you know, the Chinese government, the copy of that lease will find its way out into the public and people will see it on their WhatsApp groups that, you know, they've just signed a new diamond lease and it's just the nature of the beast. And I smile. It's actually not funny and it isn't a laughing matter, but I also learned that um, there is a natural progression to things that sometimes you just don't fight. <laughs> you know, when you first started out in Africa, your passion was this about, you were, you were passionate about conservation and working in that. Well, what's been the passion journey for you? The, the passion journey for me was actually about personal growth and exploration. Mm. What, what happened is, is in that journey, I got to, when I first moved to Africa and South Africa, I was right next to the Kruger National Park. So my passion, which is incredibly incited by my entire life, it's just it's what I do. I see the world with passion. That took on a new mantle. You know, so a first elephant I saw and then the first rhino I saw and then the first lion, the first leopard, and that's what drove me. But I think if you look underneath, and this is coming to me as I'm talking to you, is my passion was to leave a mark on the world. Mm. It didn't matter what I did. There was a crusader. There was a part in me that wanted to say that just because this is the way something's always done doesn't mean it has to continue to always be done like that. I wanted to take my unique upbringing and see the world differently i wanted to order perspective so we get caught in dogma very easily as human species we just get on this train track and we just ride and we don't stop and you know i'm one of those people who sees things a little differently and that's my passion my passion is to open eyes yeah and i was very lucky that you know like i said with the conservation that tapped into a part of me that uh, captured the man, the man of me, you know, all that fear and anger I'd had as a youngster in the bush was gone. Mm. I could be tracking, you know, the, the most dangerous animal in the world and I was home. So it fed into that, that, that challenge as a man, but also ch- it also tapped into that part of me as a father that wanted to inspire my children. So it tapped into all those elements for me that I wanted my passion to. And I was very lucky. I was blessed that I got to live mm. like that, but, but, then, but also um, you standing standing your ground against against overwhelming forces in a way in terms of doing the things you did in terms of standing against the cor- about the corrupt infrastructure around you. What, yeah, what was and, that? And what was that about? Why, what made uh, you? Why did you not I, cave in like everybody else does? I, I think that I took the um, 
you know, we talked a little bit about fear turning into anger as a young man. Mm. I think I, I think I took that journey to the extreme. I think what happened, if I look back on it, because I'm still exploring a lot of these behaviours as I do, um, I didn't want to be the one to fold. I, I didn't want to be that one to, to, to show fear. And then what I found in that was that when I did that and when it was honest, when I, when I actually stopped being scared of the moment, the people around me stopped being scared. And it was this whole brotherhood thing. I think that that's what happened to me. You know, like I said, once I converted the fear and the anger, which was driving me into just this genuine respect for myself and my abilities, I think I wanted to be a leader. And I think that if I'd had maybe a different life, I think that's what I was destined to be. I believe, you know, I've got leadership qualities that are quite different to most. And I was passionate about lead. I want to see people around me be the best version of themselves. Mm. To this day, that is another thing. And I don't care whether it was the T-boy or the guy sweeping up the office on the farm or whether it was a tracker I worked with in the African bush or whether now it's someone that I meet in the street. I want to see people be the best version of themselves. And I've found in my experience, the best way to do that is for me to be the best version of myself, lead by example. I mean, you certainly were leading people though, because I mean, you've led, you, you must have led a team when you were tracking and you were and on the farm, you were leading at that point because you were, you were creating something brand new. I mean, even the, even the elephant process you were doing about discouraging elephants, that's not a leadership role because you were showing people there's an alternative. Yeah, it was. The, the thing is, is at the time, you know, I'm very much this guy I talk about being in the moment. I, I didn't think of it like that. Again, my humility and this humble side of me is sometimes to my detriment. And mm. I, I, it was only again in prison that I started to actually realise my leadership qualities and I started to understand a lot more about my journey because here I was a white guy walking in an African prison. The, in the first day in there, I went to war with a Nigerian guy, literally because I knew I was in serious trouble if I didn't stamp my authority. So I, I did that. Then I befriended the right guard. Then I clicked up with these two guys. And what I started to see of myself was this ability to, and then I, I pulled myself together as a group. We started to teach them, you know, self-defense. And I started talking about, like I said, jailhouse lawyer. And I saw this part of me and it was all sincere. And this was this first time I looked at myself and actually went, this is genuinely who you are. Whereas prior to that, I don't think I really knew who I was. That's an amazing sign of resilience, that, because I think most people, most white guys, I certainly would fold in, a, in an environment like that. I don't know I would, how I would survive it. See, you, know, you say that and everyone does, and I'm actually going to challenge and say, I don't know if you would, because I don't think until you're in there, you'd be surprised what you're capable of. And this is what I try to take them in there. As I, people say that really quickly, and I'm like, you don't know. And you don't want to find out, so let's not. No, say no, no, I to... don't want to go there. No, no, I, I, I'll pass but... on that one if I may. <laughs> yeah, but I, but I think we'd all be surprised, and this is why. And again, I'm, I don't, I don't, I'm not encouraging people to go push themselves into dangerous situations to understand their capabilities. But through just my accidental journey of having to do that, what I realised it whenever I thought I wouldn't make it, I did. And now I sit there and I go through it all and I help people with it and I give and I have a, I'm a man of service and I'm a man that can be proud of himself, and, but I'm also a man that's incredibly vulnerable and understands his emotional side and can share it. I've got to that point where my life through all those challenges has given me something incredibly special. Now, if I'd not challenged myself and if I'd said no, 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 and I'd stayed in a job and I'd sat, I, I wouldn't be able to do that. And I think, and again, not, not trying to, 
write tickets on myself or appear arrogant. We need more people walking in our communities who from experience can lead by example because politicians aren't going to change our lives. Local politicians aren't going to, all these people that we look up to to fix everything, they're just human like you and I. They make mistakes based off human emotions and human reaction and human frailty. The only hope we have as a species is, is locally, is in little community. When we, when we start on that little cellular level and we work out from there, we've got an immense amount of potential to change. Mm-hmm. But no politician is going to wake up tomorrow and give a speech that's going to change. There's no Winston Churchill around that's, going to, that's not going to happen. Well, the other problem is, is this, the system is so decked against them. I know. I, yeah, I, I mean, I don't exactly. know. I, I know your. I don't know, know your system in Australia the world, but I know from looking at our system, mm. it's it's the gears are almost hardwired and locked into a process where to actually do anything to do any 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 major change is really really difficult. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you, and I think my conversation with Aaron was particularly amazing and it was very long and I realized that we were going down huge rabbit holes and going off topic quite a lot so I decided to cut from here and we rejoin the conversation when we're talking about the addiction of being right we get addicted to the idea of being right we, yeah. we just we've got it we'll fight it tooth and nail with really sometimes very little evidence other than our own perspective yeah to the death until that last week or you know depending on how how your rapid declining before we say you see your maker is and all of a sudden people realize that that thing they've held on to that entire time had no weight it had no purpose it was yeah. literally people holding you look at it in families and you look at it with politics and you look at it with whatever it may be in the world COVID's now becoming an anti and a pro and we've just got this addiction to being right and the problem with being right is very rarely can you be adamantly right and happy at the same time when it's a really big thing like politics or religion. You just, it doesn't, they don't go hand in hand. So we spend our lives fighting these wars. And I can tell you because I was a crusader, I fought wars. That's what I did. I went in and I, and a lot of the time I look back and what did it get me? I've lost my kids. Now I'm going to whether it was wrong or right and would I, would I change it? I don't know. But it's an example for me sometimes of the idea of what did I get by being right? What did I get by, by changing my mind? I'm saying you give up. Again, you know, this is a slippery slope here, but I think sometimes we've got to be very cautious what we hold on to closely, how holdly we, how, how, how hard we hold on to it and how close. But we the, hold the question it. is, though, isn't it? It's the distinction of right and wrong, isn't it? That's the point. Yeah, and, and that's exactly right. And I think that's where I've got to a point I've come to now. This was another point where we went off on a complete tangent. And it was an amazing conversation, but it wasn't about Aaron. It was about the state of the world and two old men talking. So I decided to cut it out here because, again, I think, again, I'm trying to get back to the essence of what the story is about Aaron. So we join us now at his success question. How do you define success? And how has that changed for you over time? Well, I mean, I, I used to think success was all about money and prestige, like mm. I think pretty much the most of the developed world was. But It, it has to be in the beginning because you've got to build some resource. But Yeah, uh, exactly. At some, point, at some point, you have to define it for yourself. because Well, for me, I think for most of my life, it was being accepted and understood, if I'm honest. That's really what I was after because I had money and I would piss it away. You know, Money for me wasn't uh, prestige. I was always happy to be quite humble. But one thing I did search out as in success and what I defined it as was acceptance of my peers, was very much 
Um, and then I think towards the end was very much this idea that I did it better than everyone else. I wanted to be seen as that guy who pushed that little bit harder. Um, that was, you know, probably just prior to prison. And what, what do I define it as now? Oh, being able to be honest. Mm. If I want to put it simply, I, I don't have an area of my life that I need to lie about. Mm. Not one area. And that, and people might go, what do you, how can that define success? I simplify everything. So if it doesn't make sense, I sort of understand where you're coming from. I don't have to hide anything. My sadness, if I feel depressed, I feel depressed. If I have anxiety, I, I know where my anxiety comes from. I feel no need to ever pretend to be anything other than I am. There's that no is, judgment on other people's success, by the way. If someone doesn't understand your success, that's their bloody problem, not yours. <laughs> yeah, and that, and that, that to me, yeah, and that to me has become that definition because I see that as my, I was looking for a legacy. What was I going to leave my kids? And I realised that I was never going to be about money. It was never going to be about um, conservation. It was never going to be about battling corruption. It was going to be about who I was. Mm. So I stripped away the idea of the achievements that I had being success and actually who I was as a man was what was going to be defined as my success. Mm. Courage, honesty, sincerity, ability to be vulnerable, resilience. They, that's my definition for me. And every one of you who listens to this will have a different based on your life path and your life journey. And also remember, you're not done yet. So if there's some words in there you, don't, you haven't got yet, you can go and get them anytime. So how do you define your contribution to the world? Can I say, can I say same again? Because the problem is, is I do see that now. Everything I've just talked about, because, see, you know, as a species, we get caught up in the talking and the yeah. watching and the reading and the watching and the talking and the reading. So my contribution is to live the stuff I just spoke about. So it's all good and well for me to sit here and tell you that I define success as honesty, sincerity. So what is my contribution? To not be full of shit, not to be a hypocrite and to live the things that I've just described as success because it's very easy to say them. It's another thing for me to live them and to live them publicly, even when I'm not perfect at them. This is the thing. If any of my failures, my contribution must be honest and be vulnerable in them because if I fail publicly, it gives people around me the strength to go, you know what, I'm going to try as well. But, you know, I mean, all right, I've got an opinion on your contribution. You know, I, I think the farm project you set up, you demonstrated what's possible in Africa. Mm. And those people who experienced it would have gone, this was better than what we've got now. Right. And it may not happen immediately, but you, mm. sh you showed there is a possibility. And you also demonstrated the power to stand up against it. So, I mean, I'm not saying, you know, everyone's going to take, take your leave and it, and it may not do it, but it may plant the seed in one of those people who you have positively affected. I'd love to think so. You when don't know what change can come out of that. Yeah, I mean, I often thought so. And I mean, I had a lot of farmers quietly wanting to talk to me about the things I was doing on that farm. I'm sure. Um, but like I said, the politics of the place just makes it very difficult for you to do that. And I'm sure. Like, but someone somewhere, you yeah. know, someone, you well, know, one of those people might go into politics and go, we've got yeah. to change this. You know, well, that could happen, couldn't it? Yeah, it could. And I had some incredible African staff there that I took from nothing and, and really nurtured and supported in a way mm. and, you know, really developed them. And there is that hope that what they'll also do is teach their kids that even though there's a system around us that's broken, we don't have to live like that 
Mm. You know what I mean? And you do, you do, you do hope. Yeah, I have those thoughts every now and then. I do tend to shut them down pretty quickly. Purely just well, it's not for you. I mean, you don't know. We don't know the contribution yeah. we leave, do we? You can only kind no. of you can only put the contribution you want to put out in the world. I don't know what this podcast creates. You know, I, this is my contribution to the world. I don't know what effect it's had, and if it affects, if it changes one person's life, it's 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 done its job in a way. Yeah, yeah, it has, and that's right. And 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 I have had moments where I've been able to do that. So, I have, I have, you know. how do you contribute to yourself? Hmm. It's a good question. I mean, the reality for me, my simple contributions to my to myself is that I don't stop searching for that better version of myself. Mm. I, I believe that this journey doesn't have an end. When I mean by this journey, I mean the, the I guess personal development, whatever word you're comfortable using. I just think that there's always more to find out about me, and that again, I do I do that publicly. Mm. So I search publicly. I don't, you know, hide behind closed doors and read books and then, you know, go digging around. I, I go out in the public and I explore publicly because, again, every time I make a mistake, I give someone an opportunity to fail right beside me. Every time I have a success, I give someone the courage to take that step in and have a crack for themselves. Um, yeah, and, and again... So how do you I keep, keep... I mean, as a contribution was how do you keep yourself positive and in a good place because you know you... Medita meditation meditation by yeah. far if i was to give one simple tool to anyone and not the form of meditation most people hear that word and they think of someone cross-legged making funny noises you know and they're in a relaxed state looking for enlightenment no I, I work a type of meditation that's incredibly confronting my meditation is about looking at what i truly am so i spend a lot of time every single morning now at the moment down at the beach at 5 5 30 and I look at who I am. God forbid you're one of those 5.30 people. God, I can't yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. I look at what the thoughts that come up. I explore <laughs> what my mind does on a yeah. daily basis. What comes, I look at it and I learn from it. But that is the thing. Meditation, I think, is brilliant. And, and, and that self-reflection, any, any form of self-reflection, I think, is very, very valid. Because it's that self-care. It is. I, I think it's also that it's training and being honest. You know, yeah. when you're alone, when you're in silence and solitude, and you've got no one else to point the finger at. You've got no else. You get to have a look really, you get a choice, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Have a look at what's really there. And if, yeah. if you sit for 20 minutes and there's a thought going and going and going and going again, that's, that's you, your soul or whatever you want to call it telling you to look at something. And most people don't sit still without a television or without a phone. So when you sit still on a beach or you sit still in your garden or in my office when it is too cold and or it's pouring rain, I sit in my office floor and I meditate. You know, there's no hiding there. And you get given a choice. Do I want to look honestly at those thoughts I'm having? Do I want to honestly look at the role I played in that incident yesterday where I stormed off angry, pointing the finger at that person for doing wrong by me? If I look at it with an alternative perspective, have I got a role in that? Is there a lesson that I didn't learn? Can I go back and ask for forgiveness? Mm -hmm. Should I? See, you don't get any of those opportunities to make those choices in noise. You know, if you're in noise, if you've got a TV, you've got your phone beside mm. you, you're constantly thinking, you're always... Life with a soundtrack, yeah. Yeah, so when you when you go into meditation, that's what meditation's about. Meditation's not about some hippie thing, cross-legged, smoking dope and being relaxed. It's an opportunity to look at yourself sincerely and honestly for what you truly are and being happy for what you find. And then when you're not happy, you find a way to change it. If you need forgiveness, then look for forgiveness. 
You need more gratitude in your life. Practice more gratitude. Whatever it is, get the choice. Take the choice back. Mm. Stop pointing fingers out and start pointing them in. Mm-hmm. So what's the one question you like people or want people to ask you? Um, I guess it would be, what do you think you're strong? What's your greatest gift? Yeah, what, what, is, what do you believe your greatest gift is or your greatest skill in this world? Mm. And that's quite simple is for me, it's being a father. Mm-hmm. It's very I important to you, isn't it, being a father? It's, it is. It's come up a lot in our conversation, you being a father. It is. Look, I, I came from, from <clears> a, like I said, a unique childhood where I didn't have a parent. Right. I had no parents. I had, and the parents, the people who were parents there were the complete opposite of what you would want to see as a parent. And so when I was blessed with the opportunity and I started making some pretty serious mistakes early on, I was faced with this, you know, the, the, the reflection time and realized that the, the most precious gift we get given in this lifetime, mother or father, is parenthood. How old are your kids now? Um, my daughter is seven. My son almost be five. Wow. And yeah, and I've, and I've got a, a little boy who's almost six months old here now in Australia. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So it is, it is because I, I don't know. I see this idea of searching for a legacy and searching for inspiration and all these things that I went crusading for. If there's no, if there was no purpose behind it, I was literally just living a selfish life. So in the early days of conservation, I was just having fun. And it was only when my daughter was born and I started to look at the purpose behind why I was doing it, was I able to truly be humble about the experiences I was having. So to me, my children enriched my existence, but they also became an incredibly beautiful motivation to look deeper at myself, Mm. to be honest about myself and to heal the things that needed to be healed so that they didn't have to inherit them. Because that was probably one of my biggest driving forces is that I carried a lot of junk around with me through life. And when I started looking in their eyes and looking at their journey and I was just, it was so easy for me to say, I don't want them to carry my junk. Let them create their own. You know, if they want to create their own junk and that's their choice, but I don't want them to carry mine without a choice. I don't want them to inherit my baggage. Hmm. And so for me, it was a very simple choice. And that's why even now to this day, I still do it and I still encourage it in men, you know, I believe that we have that type of energy. We have that, you know, geared for challenge, geared to problem solve. We've got that, that brain that when calmed down and when given stability has this beautiful gift to create that yeah, and to create that sense for those around us. Because when men have got their shit together, when we're stable, when we're calm, man, what we unfold for the people we love around us, our partners can become way more safe and trusted. Our children can develop and grow their own personalities and not be like us. Mm-hmm. But when we're not, when we're wired and we're tight and we're stressed and we're angry and we're in fear and we're hiding everything, everyone around us suffers too. Mm-hmm. That is the strength of a masculine energy. Mm-hmm. You can't deny it. That's the power we play in this world. When men aren't together and when they don't have that, the world suffers for it. And I believe, and again, it's quite, quite harsh. Men might not like to hear it. I believe we have a responsibility, especially the second we have children, to have a look at that part of our role in this world. So, look, my friend, how do people get in touch with you? What is it that you offer? And what are you looking to, who, who are you looking to talk to? Well, look, um, I've, I'll talk to anyone. The truth is I'm of the belief that if I can help you, I'll sincerely and honestly tell you I can. And if I can't, I'll help you find someone who can. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I am. What is it? You, what is it you would say that you do? Because well, think look, I, I my, my terminal. People call me a life coach, life mentor. You know, or a, bit, or a business coach. I coach businesses with their with their HR issues with their staff. What do I do? I bring out the best in people. Okay, so if you're stuck, if you're in that mouse that mouse trap or in that um, hamster wheel going round and round, you know, my business is called Catalyst, and that's what I am. I'm that guy who offers you choice. Yeah. You know, I come along and um, I'm not an easy ride. I'm the guy who confronts and I'm the guy who holds you accountable. I'm the guy that shows you your dreams when you seem to be, you know, turning your back on them again and again and again. My job is to inspire people. And how would they find you? Catalyst Coaching Australia. Catalyst Coaching Australia. Facebook, Instagram, um, or Aaron Young on Facebook. Don't do a website just yet. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not a great self promoter, as I told you, Paul. This is all starting to change now. I'm starting to get into. The so you haven't of... got a website for this, is it? No, I, I haven't just yet. I'm, I'm still, like I said, social media seems to be enough. And like I said, I'm enjoying being dad. So I keep my business nice and small for now. As a as a be... as an ex digital marketer, I would advise you to get a website because social yeah. channels. <laughs> I'm not your friend. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I know. And and the truth is they're not. Like they're ridiculous. And it's like- We get the last question that we ask all our guests. And it's that one which, you know, I know you're a spiritual man. I know you've got involved in spirituality. So what is the meaning of life for you? You're gonna make it up on the spot. I know you are. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. Be- because I think it, it's it's after every conversation, especially one like we've just had, it's a learning question, isn't it? Like, it is. I don't think there's a fixed answer to it. Like right now, I'm gravitating to the words like um, sincerity and honesty. I mean, this word honesty, you know, you, you hear it and people get sick of me repeating myself. But the meaning of life for me is to be able to be honest. And again, what I mean by that is to just truly be who you are without any hidden values, without any hidden interest, without any hidden thoughts. Two days ago, I put a post up on social media, which asked the question, what would a stranger think of you if they could see what you were thinking? So if you didn't have the ability to speak and they could see the thoughts going on in your head, what would they see? And to me, that is the meaning of life in that you could be proud to show those thoughts, to show everything inside you. No, nothing hidden, no agenda, just who you are, that you could walk around with that. Yeah, because I believe with that sense of peace, you offer the world around you a sense of peace. And I know it sounds a little bit cliched and hippie, and I'm not a, I'm not a hippie. I just believe that we've overcomplicated the world. And I think when you just come bring it back to these simple moments these terms things like that what i've just mentioned about honesty life takes on a very different tack Mm. and i think that our desire to chase knowledge and all these other definitions of success from my perspective we've lost sight of the simplicity Mm. because it is actually all very simple when we want it to be Uh, ego doesn't want it to be it wants to look and sound clever and i know that because i was that person most of my life and i've just now found that for me the meaning of that is that is that opposite it's simple thank you for that aaron young thank you so much for this wonderful long conversation (laughs) (laughs) thanks paul it was my pleasure it was a beautiful opportunity thank you 
Yeah, me too. And that was Life, Passion and Business with Paul Harvey and my guest, Aaron Young. If you would like to connect with Aaron, Facebook and Instagram are his preferred media. He's not felt the need to build a website yet. You'll also find him on YouTube. Just search for Aaron Young. Now, those links can be found at the website lifepassionandbusiness.com. And while you're there, do check out the other interviews with over 300 people and the loads of shortcasts little bit of bite-sized bits of information to support you on this ongoing journey that we call life. So thank you so much for being here on this journey with us. And uh, if you would like to support the show, please give us a like or review on the podcast app of your choosing. As always, thank you so much for your time and attention. I'll catch you next time. All the best. <laughs>